Hello and welcome back to The Business Of, a podcast that aims to shine a spotlight on Australia's great businesses and business people. My name's Charlie Sell and I'm joined by co-host Will Chapman. How are you, Will? Good, thanks. How are you, Charlie? How are you, Peter? Yeah, I'm really good and great to be back here in Brisbane. Thanks for the invitation. So, Will, as Will's just alluded to there, we're very lucky to be joined by Peter Deans. Will, could you give us a very brief introduction about Peter? Yep, so Peter has had an illustrious career in the risk industry where he worked as Chief Risk Officer for Bank West before a nearly eight-year tenure as Chief Risk Officer at BOQ. More recently, he has founded his own consulting firm, Not Without Risk Consulting, and he also holds a number of board roles. He is also a mentor for the Macquarie University Incubator Program. So Peter, a question we'd like to start out asking our guests is, what are they doing at 9am on a Monday morning? Oh, 9am Monday, wow. Uh, I'm definitely up and about, so I'm usually a morning person. Uh, by nine, I've, I've pretty well had my coffee. And yeah, usually I sort of try and clear out the emails early in the morning, so between about 7.30 and nine, just get off to a good start. Yeah. yeah, so I guess before we dive into other stuff, I guess the first question we have to ask you is, many people have never heard about or met a chief risk officer. So what do they actually do and do many businesses have a CRO? That's a great question. Uh, you probably go back 15, 20 years ago, uh, CROs basically didn't exist. Um, They're in banks predominantly. And the chief risk officer role uh, is, is to sort of be, I guess, the, 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 the champion and sort of custodian of, you know, all things risk management, not necessarily owning all the risks in the business, but making sure that, you know, the CEO, the executive team and the business, you know, people, divisions are all thinking about what risks they have to manage today, what risks might be coming at them. And we often talk in the industry about emerging and strategic risks. Uh, I think after the global financial crisis, uh, a lot more, certainly financial institutions, so insurers, banks, investment banks, they started to think a lot more about, okay, we need to sort of think more about whether it's liquidity, whether it's, you know, uh, market disruptions, as the global financial crisis was, um, and think about, well, you know, what can go wrong? How do we make our businesses more resilient? And and what's really happened, and Australia's actually led the way a little bit, is you started to see a lot more chief risk officers across all industries. And so if you look at the top 20 or top 50, certainly the top 20 ASX-listed companies, the likes of, you know, Woolworths, Coles, Qantas, uh, they've all got chief risk officers and they all sit on the executive um, sort of level reporting to the, the CEO and quite often have a direct line through to the board as well. So it's it's been good to see. I mean, it's, it's companies making investment in, you know, thinking about what makes them more resilient. And of course, COVID, and I don't know if we'll get time to talk about COVID, but COVID, of course, has been one of the biggest risk events, mm. you know, countries, industries and businesses have had to face for 100 years. Mm. For sure. And you speak about, like, I suppose every business is obviously going to take on risk. Um, in terms of helping guide your management team through good risks and bad risks, how, how do you how do you help take them on that journey? Oh, often it's just a bit of a conversation. Where, like, if it's a business initiative, like you're making some sort of like an acquisition of a business, or you're doing a capital project, it's sort of thinking about well, what are the scenarios where something can go wrong? And if you think about, uh, let's say. A construction project. I mean, the the obvious things are, you know, delays in getting the 
building or the factory or whatever it is built, um, cost overruns uh, in Brisbane where we are, you know, rain's a bit of an issue from time to time. <laughs> and so the role of the risk, you know, the risk officer or even the risk manager is to sort of really guide a bit of these conversations. And what, what I tend to see is um, particularly long established businesses, they actually do understand their risks quite well. And also, and I've, in my banking career, you know, 32 odd years, I dealt with a lot of private businesses, which were essentially self-made, you know, millionaires and billionaires. Mm. And, and, and they actually were walking risk people themselves because they didn't want their business to fail and they basically had it all up in their heads. <laughs> you get into larger corporations with thousands and thousands of people, well, you can't really rely on one person. You need to have a lot more of a structured approach to sort of thinking about risk-taking. And, and, you know, the downside of businesses, you know, going broke or, you know, missing some sort of risk issue is that it actually can cost them a lot of money. So I often mm. sort of say the benefits of risk management is, uh, you know, the, the, the big two ones, uh, losses avoided. Mm. You, know, you, you simply avoid losing money because you're aware of the risks and try and, you know, mitigate them. And then also what's becoming, you know, more topical, particularly with, you know, the recent issues with Optus and Medibank Private with the data breaches is, is your licence to operate, which might be a regulatory licence to operate or could just be the social licence to operate where actually people don't want to deal with you if you can't be trusted with their data. Mm-hmm. So the risk, yeah, the risk manager or risk officer is sort of one to really keep an eye out on these risks to sort of make sure there's conversations happening and, uh, you know, obviously documenting it's also important. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So in your time at BOQ, obviously the Royal Commission into Misconduct in the banking, superannuation and financial services industry was going on. How did you manage that and was that particularly stressful for your job and sort of how did you go about dealing with that? And guiding BOQ through that. Yeah, and that's a little little while ago now, I think 2018 that yeah. was. Uh, I was the co-chair of our working group. And, you know, Bank of Queensland, we, we'd tried for many years to operate on a, you know, what I'd call an ethical basis, you know, do the right thing by our customers. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, we, we only had one very brief appearance at the Royal Commission yeah. and there was no real misconduct um, in, in that session. But uh, what was probably... Uh, more important for us was to take away the lessons from from the Royal Commission. Yeah. Uh, I mean, some of the bigger banks that got into a lot of trouble with the Royal Commission, I mean, they, they're effectively forced mm. through, you know, regulatory enforcement and also, again, a lot of pressure from shareholders, investors and staff and customers to say, well, you clearly haven't done the right thing by us in your selling of products or insurance or whatever it was. Mm. Um, so they, they really had a lot of pressure to... You know, we all use the term remediation plan. They had to do a remediation plan. But for Bank of Queensland, we were just sort of taking away, well, what, you know, what are the sort of lessons learnt from what we've seen in the rest of the industry? And I think that's also another role of the, you know, the risk leaders is to sort of think about, well, what, what else can we do to enhance the business? You know, what opportunities are there? And also look at what's, you know, particularly in financial services, what's coming down the pipeline with regulation mm. and sort of think about, well, how can we organise ourselves um, to certainly make sure we don't get tied up in knots with new regulation? And also, again, just goes back to this eth- ethically, you know, operating and ethical business practices. And I'm, I'm sure you guys know that this whole e ESG sort of trend, particularly this year, is very much grounded in in businesses Mm. operating ethically. I find it very interesting how you seem to take a forward-looking risk approach, if that makes sense. A a large amount of, I think, with regards to cybersecurity recently, like that's been very much, okay, there's a breach. Now what are we going to do about it? 
and in risk, how important is it to have a forward lens rather than going, oh, something's happened, now let's try and mitigate mitigate the size of the loss, if that makes sense? Yeah, you're going to make a good risk manager when you finish university, <laughs> Charlie. Um, yeah, look, cyber is... is Look, I personally find it a bit of a frustrating one because in Australia, the cyber risk has always been there. It's it's clearly got you know worse, not just COVID, but I think the you know the the malicious cyber hackers and attackers are much more sophisticated. They themselves are you know commercial businesses operating you know somewhere usually <laughs> usually in Eastern Europe, um, and they're very well organised. And you know I think. Australia has, you know, I'd probably say been a bit complacent, to, to be to be honest, around cyber. The threat's always been there, but because we're a bit the other side of the world, we, predominant, we, we haven't really been the target of these, you know, ransomware hackers to the same extent European businesses and US businesses are. And as a result, I think corporate Australia's been a little bit complacent. And mm. uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but in Europe... Um, they, they put in this regulation called GDPR in 2016 and it was very prescriptive about what businesses needed to do to protect customers' data. Mm. They had to be very, very clear on what data they collected, how long they held it for. Mm. And if they got it wrong, there was quite punitive um, fines and penalties, which was a percentage of the turn revenue. And so a lot of businesses that were operating in Europe or European-based, they, they had to lift what they were doing quite markedly. But Australia didn't have the equivalent of GDPR. And the new federal government um, after Optus has actually put through new legislation to sort of toughen up what's in place. Um, look, it, it, I think there's still more to be done. And then, of course, every company around the country of any size is actually look, looking and reassessing their cyber risk profile today. Mm. Um, but again, it's like... In my personal views, they should have done it last year, the year before, the year before that. And as you said, mm. often it takes an event or an incident to sort of wake people up, which, uh, again, I see quite frustrating because uh, you see a lot of risk surveys. Uh, the World Economic Forum does one every year in January. They've had cybersecurity there for a decade. So uh, I always sort of, it's a bit like ESG, one says, oh, this has crept up on us a little bit. And I was like, well, you know, climate change has been around for 20 or 30 years, but all of a sudden everyone's focused on the E of ESG as well. Mm. Yeah, well, um, something that I find very interesting as well, and, you know, it seems quite, it's pretty crazy how these hacking groups have, you know, sort of all at once come to target Australia. Obviously, it's because we're an easy target due to our lack of regulation. Um, so in the news, they were talking about there was a new bill in Parliament that is attempting to make paying ransoms to these hacking groups illegal. Does this mean that companies have been paying these ransoms in the past? And what, what, what's the implications of that sort of bill? Yeah, look, I think I'm not a lawyer, first of all. Yeah. So, you know, maybe, maybe get a lawyer on the, <laughs> the program to talk about this. But uh, my sort of lay understanding is at the moment it's a grey area where the paying of ransom to ransomware groups is not actually prohibited and, mm. and the legislation really doesn't really say anything. Mm. Um, there are some some legislative requirements that says it's a bit like you can't finance criminal activities and there's a bit of a view, well, if you're paying ransomware to a criminal group, perhaps you might fall foul of mm. that requirement. And likewise, if uh, the criminal group was in a sanctioned country, uh, under the sanctions sort of arrangements. Well, you're breaching sanctions by paying if they're in a, a, san a sanctioned country. Mm. Um, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot better experts than me on this that could, mm. could sort of step you through this. Um, but my understanding is people are paying ransom 
ransom demands and mm. um, the ransomware, the bad guys, they are actually taking the money and then not doing what they said they were going to do. So <laughs> it's pretty, you can sort of see it's pretty tempting for a company or a board to say, well, you know, do we pay the, whatever the number is, a million dollars or five million dollars yeah. and have some confidence yeah. that we won't, you know, the data won't be released or do we take a more principled and, you know, I don't know, arguably conservative approach mm. to say, well, we're not going to and then you risk, you know, the data being being released. I suspect whether it's the government's legislative requirement or I think industry and government, you know, will, will get together to, to, to flesh out you know what is the right approach um mm. I, I personally don't don't know what you would do i guess it depends on yeah. the circumstances of the actual you know company what sort of data it was holding as well and and some of the ransomware attacks um they're not actually going to release data they just say we'll just actually switch your company off you know we'll turn yeah. the lights off on all the it systems so you actually lose all of your corporate data and effectively lose your ability to operate. And so I think when, when you're offered a million dollars to just say, oh, well, that won't happen, we'll go away, It's mm. it, you can see how it's potentially tempting for... Absolutely, for yeah. So, yeah. So I think you've got to balance up a bit of the regulatory sort of lens of this. Is mm. it legal to do it? <laughs> a bit of the commercial realities of like, well, if we don't do it, you know, the downside's quite quite severe and then there's probably a little bit of this ethical dilemma of you know should you be paying a ransom yeah. <laughs> ransom to criminal groups um mm. yeah and again i think this is some of the issues both you know the policy makers as well as the industry and and you know the corporate australia is working through yeah now peter you touched on that you're not a lawyer but what sort of pathway do does someone take to become a chief risk officer i'm, I'm very intrigued by this because you don't, there's no degree called risk at uni. It's no, some, no. Yeah. And, and, and you've yeah, that last point, I, I've sort of, I mean, I'm a bit evangelical about risk management, of course. Um, and, um, yeah, I think the, there should be a greater investment in education, uh, particularly at universities. Um, there's very, very few, actually. I went to Harvard University in 2010. Yeah, uh, I, for, I, I know that one. Yeah, so <laughs> I, went, I went for one week, which was, um, it was a pilot course of risk management for corporate leaders. And they've only run it, I think, twice. I mean, it was a great course, but they've only run it twice since. And when I was speaking to the faculty people, they said, oh, we just don't really have the demand for it. And I'm just like, oh, wow. I was like, yeah. you know, surely we need to, you know, you, you, the universities teach technology, they teach law, they teach finance, but there is a bit of a blind spot with, with risk management. So I, I'd like to think there is, um, you know, more investment in university courses. Mm. Um, I think to the start of your question, um, you know, I think the chief risk officers today come from a myriad of different um, sort of vocations. I mean, mine was uh, commercial lending, so basically lending to small, medium, yep. large-sized businesses and corporates. And and when you're sort of looking at, you know, from a credit risk perspective, you're sort of yep. thinking about what can impact the company repaying our loans. That mirrors very much what a chief risk officer does looking at their own corporation or entity saying, well, you know, what can go wrong? What risks do we need to manage? What systems and processes do we need to have in place to manage the risks? So sure. you see people coming up from the finance stream. Um, you do actually see quite of compliance people coming through the legal stream because mm -hmm. risk has got, you know, a little bit compliance heavy, particularly in financial services. Um, and then in 
Um, you know, so the general corporate sector, a lot of them come through um, workplace health and safety, uh, a lot of people come through operations roles, and you do actually see, I'm seeing a little bit more finance people and CFOs moving across to become chief risk officers, because if you don't have a chief risk officer, quite often the risk responsibilities go up to the finance function. So there's no, there's no, one, there's no one path at the moment, and you know, it'll be interesting in 10 years' time if, it's, if that's changed. Um, there's certainly a lot more recognition the value and you know, it's a bit like cyber security. I mean, it's a bit difficult to find experienced risk people around the world because they're in mm. demand. You know, you see those salary graphs every year and the growth in jobs and, you know, risk is one of those growth areas uh, along with things like data science um, and some of the more technology ones. Uh, so, so I think that will be encouraging more people to move into risk management. I actually must say, even the you know the talks and conferences and things I go to, um, there's always people come up and say, oh, I really wouldn't mind talking about how do you get a career in risk management. So there's definitely mm. interest out there. Mm. Yeah, another industry in Australia that I guess has a bit of a shortage at the moment is the um, specialised cyber <laughs> and IT industry. And I guess that's probably one of the main factors behind these breaches recently. How do you think Australia goes about fixing that shortage and you know, boosting up employment in that industry? Yeah, I think, um, well, I think it's been tech skills more broadly uh, the last three or four years. Um, It's not so much COVID affected, but it's just more, you know, we're in this incredible period of innovation where, you know, every business has to digitise, you know, most of what it does. Mm. You know, all businesses have got digital marketing strategies, apps, et cetera. Mm. And that all takes technology people to build. It takes technology people sitting around the boardroom table to sort of understand what the opportunities are, what the strategies need to be developed. And so I think you've just seen this demand for tech people generally, including cyber. Um, And then, of course, with um, this, you know, this period of you know excess liquidity and money pouring into venture capital and startups up until about six months ago um, <laughs> that in turn has actually you know increased a lot of demand for tech skills including cyber so mm. so I think it's it's probably a more systemic issue um, and again I know the, the governments here and universities have been trying to invest more in technology courses and streams mm. I just think it's a bit hard to play catch up that quickly and then of course yeah. COVID for Australia meant that it was difficult for workers to come in. A lot of workers went home, particularly, you know, the Indian-based technology workers. Mm. Mm. Um, so I think it's just going to take a bit of time. Um, I think with, um, you know, I guess with the slowdown in the VC and startup space, there's probably going to be um, a little bit of a circuit breaker there. Yeah. But certainly with cyber, with what we've talked about with Optus and Medibank, uh, you know, Lots and lots of businesses probably don't employ cyber specialists today, but yep. they will be looking at employing them. And unfortunately, there is still a relatively small pool. Um, uh, countering that, there's a lot. There's actually a lot of cyber security businesses that have sprung up now as well. Mm. So, mm. you know, Australia's got you know quite good um, good expertise in the area, and I think a lot of businesses are saying, "Well, I can't recruit a cyber head of cyber security, but I can go and contract with a third party who yeah. can provide the effectively an outsourced service." So. Certainly, be a boom area, and uh, any of your, any of your your school buddies and stuff should be thinking about a technology degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, one, I know a recent occurrence that's happened, obviously, is the demise of FTX, and I think of all companies, they could probably do with a chief risk officer. <laughs> um, but so, do you think we should have seen the demise of Sam Bankman-Friedman coming earlier, and 
What were the key risks you saw in their business? You know, I'd never heard of the guy until about three oh, really? months ago. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I used to, people used to come up and want to talk about cryptocurrency and even startups. So I was can we talk to you about cryptocurrency? I said, oh, look, I really don't. I really don't know much about cryptocurrency. <laughs> and what I do know does alarm me a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, I think let's, let's go to, maybe we go to crypto first before mm. getting on to FTX. But, you know, cryptos, there's lots of books that have been written about this already that, you know, I think in its core, digital currencies make a lot of sense. Mm. And the central banks, you know, some of them are already starting to make digital currencies. Um, but, you know, central banks and governments work very slowly and the market moves very quickly. So, yeah. mm. you know, Bitcoin has exploded from nowhere, I don't know, was it eight eight years or so ago? Yeah. And then, of course, because it's unregulated, because it's quite volatile, you know, and easy to get into, um, lots and lots of speculative money clearly poured into it. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, you know, a lot of easy money was made very quickly. And again, you know, I've heard dozens and dozens of stories of traders, you know, making, you know, thousands mm. of dollars over a couple of days. And it's a bit of like, wow, this is really the Wild West. What I think sort of changed with FTX um, was you got more institutional money going into the broader crypto space, as it touched on with the you know, easy money because of the central bank's liquidity policies during the during COVID. All this money was looking for you know new homes, mm. and um, with very low or zero interest rates, there's basically no cost of funds for a lot of these investors. Mm. And so you saw a lot of institutional money going into cryptocurrency startups. You know, this whole DeFi, de decentralized finance, mm. was sort of became an industry in itself. And I think as you see. And it's this classic, you know, it's a classic bubble. As you see in all these bubbles, the bigger and bigger they get, the more money pours in, and at some point the, the, the bubble's pricked. And, and I think what's happened with FTX, just reading all the public, public materials the last couple of weeks, um, it, it's pretty well just old-school fraud, yeah. It's just used a different vehicle, which is, you know, an unregulated entity in the Bahamas and a few other, you know, exotic places <laughs> around the world yeah. that's, that's uh, you know, just sucked in all these very naive people. And mm. again, there was no... There was no hiding the fact that it was an unregulated business in the Bahamas. Everyone knew that, and perhaps mm. that's why a lot of people piled into it. <laughs> um, and, you know, what's, what's come out is it's, it's, it's just a Ponzi scheme. And um, yeah. I was in... I was in Washington, D.C. at uh, so like a banking think tank called the IIF in Washington and Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, um, was on stage and he was asked, you know, uh, have you changed your views on cryptocurrency? And this, be this was before FTX, mm. it was probably a month, month before. And he shrugged his shoulders, he said, look, no one wants to hear this, but he said, I, I, I still think it's all just a Ponzi scheme. And yeah. the audience sort of joked, laughed, because apparently he said this quite a few times. <laughs> and yeah. uh, he was like, I keep saying it, everyone ignores me. That was that was my take, was I keep saying it, everyone ignores me, I'll give you the same answer. Yeah. But, but, you know, he's right, as a lot of other people were, mm. um, that... Yeah, certainly in the case of FTX, it was a Ponzi scheme. There's no substance to uh, the underlying investments. It was all just smoke and mirrors and the money, I, they'll have to work out where the money's actually gone. It's still not quite clear where that is. Mm. Um, so there's a bit of, um, you know, the bit of the investor be, beware. Mm. Uh, the people that have gone in, you know, 
again, be quite blunt, um, unregulated business, a startup, mm. working outside the traditional investment sort of jurisdictions, um, you, you, I would have thought would have known it was a risky investment. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, unfortunately, people have lost money. And, and you, you guys have probably seen a lot of the Twitter and blog stories. Oh, I put my entire house deposit yeah. in there, yeah. my entire life savings. It's like, oh, wow. It's just like you got on one level sympathy, but on the other level, what? What, what, we, what, we, actually, what we actually thinking? Yeah. And so I think... Um, yeah, I don't know what what the future of uh, crypto is. We'll, we'll see. And in terms of FTX itself, I mean, I think just back on the institutions that have put money in again, well, they definitely should have known better. Um, and I was, I was talking to some people during the week, and, and of course, people focus on the investors, institutional investors that have put money in. Yeah. But the reality is, ninety eight percent of the investment community hasn't put money into FTX. It's just the two percent that either thought they'd give it a bit of a run yeah. uh, or perhaps naively thought it was a great investment. Uh, and, you know, everyone obviously focuses on who loses the money. But I think the institutional investment community has generally shied well clear of uh, these types of entities and certainly will be today. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I find the parallels between investing and um, what you've spoken about in terms of risk management um, from a corporate setting quite interesting. Like mm. the investing, I swear... People like during so during an up an up peak, like they sort of lose the lose the value investing approach. They'll start pouring money into into more speculative mm. investments, and then when something goes bad, everyone goes, "Oh, what the what the hell?" And yeah. like and then almost similar in um, what we were talking about earlier with that backward booking lens. Mm. Like I I find the parallels very interesting. Have you found that your understanding of risk has helped your investing as well? Yeah, so I look, I'm maybe it's because I'm a risk person, a relatively conservative investor anyway, but mm. um, I, I think, and this is just human nature, I mean, if you look at stock, let's say equities going up or property markets going up, you really have to fight pretty hard the desire to jump on board oh, yeah. and keep going. It's the FOMO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a bit of mm. investment FOMO. Um, yeah. And... The, the disciplined decision to not invest in something is, is actually quite difficult for many people. And, and mm. you know, I can probably list off all the investments I didn't make that, you know, I've missed out on. Mm. But at the end of the day, you've got to just think, well, you know, particularly for individuals, generally long-term investors. So I personally, and again, I'm not licensed to give financial advice. Can we put that in the podcast? We um, sure can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a bit like just take a longer-term view and, you know, I've got, I've got friends and you know, and so on that get really excited about short-term things. You know, one of my best mates, he's been a lithium lithium bug for like yeah, three, or four, <laughs> three or four years now. And I'm a bit like, oh man, I'm like, I, you know, there's like a hundred odd startups. Like, That's what we I don't keep have, saying about I, that. Yeah, well. I, 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 I don't actually have enough time to sit down and go through them no. one by one. And of course, you know, if it, again, not that we're supposed to talk about lithium today, but you know, <laughs> lithium, uh, a lot of the mines are in quite exotic countries, a lot of them in Africa. And, you know, it brings the spectre of country risk. Mm. Um, and there's mm. lots and lots of examples of mining projects and mining companies that have lost their assets because of expropriation by government, they've lost money because of bribery and corruption, or themselves have engaged in bribery and corruption and got caught out and then got fined and sanctioned by the Europeans, the Americans. So I think when you're looking at, uh, at some of these more 
you know, I'll call it riskier uh, businesses, um, you have to really you know, think about you know, the risks yourself and, and also think a bit about your risk appetite. It's like, and this is the same, we, we use the term risk appetite um, you know, in, in sort of enterprise risk management. Mm. It's a bit like, well, what, what is your actual appetite you know, in this particular category of risk? Like how much risk do you actually want to take? And uh, that, that question and conversation also does help businesses understand their businesses and risks a lot better. So I think investment's probably the same. You have to think about what's your investment risk appetite. And, you know, again, clearly some people had uh, 100% risk appetite for cryptocurrency <laughs> uh, by the fact they invested 100%. Now, did they actually ever sit back and say, well, you know, what is the risk assessment of something going wrong? Uh, I suspect most of them didn't. Mm, thank you for that uh, bit of pro bono um, risk, risk management work on making sure you that financial services right in, our, in our description. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, away from crypto, another recent failure was Deliveroo, and I saw you did a LinkedIn post about it. So are you sort of across that, and can you give us any insights there into what happened there? Yeah, I only, I only know what I've seen in the... Um, in the papers and, yeah. and I'm probably not well qualified because I've, I've actually never ordered Uber Eats or Deliveroo. Really? Never, ever. I've and never ordered uh, it from my phone either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think what, just, just and, and if thanks for calling out the LinkedIn post, I mean, I think it's, it's a little bit more basic with Deliveroo from what I read and a lot of the startups in that, you know, the main risk they face is not getting enough customers or revenue and therefore not having enough cash flow to cover operating expenses. And most of the startups, that's pretty, well, some startups, it's about developing the product and you know, a lot of the technology-based startups, there is quite a bit of work in getting the product right and getting it to market. Mm. But some of the more basic startups, and I think the food delivery startups, yeah, look, there's a technology platform, the app, and getting the communication to the restaurants and the drivers, but it's pretty simple technology, and I'm not a technology person. But you're not yeah. you're not trying to land, you know, man on the moon sort of thing. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just the basics of competition. In that each of the cities or you know regions they're operating in, there is only so much demand for you know food to be delivered, and there will be market shares people have. You've got a couple of incumbents already, and so it's a bit like, well, is the market big enough for? two, three or four players. And again, this is nothing to do with risk management. This is just almost like business school one. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. a strategy. And and I think, um, and I mentioned in that post, it's very similar to what happened with Uber in China where they'd gone for a year or two up against DD and both DD and Uber were, were effectively having to pay drivers to take rides. So mm. they were deeply underwater on yeah. each ride and that was really just to sort of keep market share. And in the end, Uber, and the numbers were sort of all a bit rubbery, but it was quoted they were losing about 50 million US a week. Wow. And it's like, they can't keep going. And I think nice. startups on a smaller scale, unless you can quickly get to cash break even, and if it's a finite market you're competing in, you're competing on price or just delivery times or you know, competing on which restaurants you've got, unless you can get critical mass and market share and get to cash flow break even, you know, you really don't have a lot of choice. And that's what we see, I think, in a lot of industries with startups in particular, and actually even more traditional businesses. Ultimately, a lot of markets can't support the number of players. And airlines is a classic in Australia. Yeah. Mm. It's been proven time and time again. Australia can really only support two big airlines. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got Rex and a few of the regional ones, but ultimately it can really only support two. If you get a third or a fourth, 
competition becomes intense, price competition, then industry goes from making profits to you know break even or, or losing money, which it has has over over the years. So, I think you know again, it's as I think Charlie said, it's really a strategy question and as much mm. as a risks mm. risk question. But when you're again developing a strategy or a business initiative, as I said at the start, uh, you want to actually have a little bit of a risk discussion and say, okay, well, how do we pressure test the strategy? Or what can go wrong? And again, if you take Deliveroo, for example, how long can we go not getting to profitability? And if it takes longer, mm. do we have enough cash flow and funding, for example, which again is a big issue for a lot of the startups, um, is like, what is the runway available before we have to go back and either raise more equity or change something yeah and that um your expertise clearly in strategy and risk alignment um is something i found very interesting um can you speak to us a bit quickly about not without risk consulting Mm. Yeah, so uh, Not Without Risk was a little bit of a a product of COVID, actually. I I sort of hadn't really intended to start the consulting business, but with COVID, you know, couldn't really travel overseas. And um, I did a little bit of travelling just before the pandemic started. Um, And I think, as I said before, I'm very passionate about risk management and wanted to sort of try and, you know, help businesses understand risk more. And I think you guys have seen the 52 risks framework that I've developed as well. And that's a, that's a free tool. And I'll give you the plug, you know, 52risks.com is the website. It's free. I was just trying to educate, you know, the broader business community, um, you know, academics, students as well about what risk management is. And so not without risk consulting just sort of takes both my experience and the consultants that work with me, as well as, you know, the approach with 52 risks of saying, make sure you've got a good understanding of all the possible risks, strategic, financial and operational, that could impact your business. And I think it's also important to, a lot of businesses will say, oh, we've got that risk covered. We talked about that a year ago, or that person's responsible. And it's like, well, the world moves so quickly. You, mm. you need to be very dynamic in your thinking about risk and not so much jump from risk to risk, but, and this is where it becomes quite a challenge for bigger bigger companies and particularly boards, where it's like, wow, like, and I say with some of the bigger companies, you know, they've got all of my 52 risks <laughs> in play. And then if you think about, you know, geopolitical challenges, you know, the trade tensions between the US and China, which maybe been eased up a little bit now, cyber we've, we've talked about as well, and even things like industry disruption, uh, climate change, weather events, it's like, there's actually a lot to think about. And that's why uh, I sort of advocate, look, have a very structured approach to risk. And I actually say, for each of the risks you identify as material risks for your business, you want to be clear who the person is that's primarily responsible for, for keeping an eye on it effectively because if you've got large corporations, you know, lots of moving parts every day, every week, you want to know that there is one person thinking about information um, security, there is one person thinking about operations risk, one th- person thinking about all the outsourced parties or supply chain so that you know that you've got day in, day out people thinking about this without saying, oh, we go to the board meeting in January and agenda item two is risk management. It needs to be much more dynamic and live. Mm. Now, final question we normally like to ask our guests, and I I know asking someone who's an expert in risk management, a little bit of a surprise question mightn't mightn't go too well, but we've got a question we like to ask is, um, what advice would you give to to a 20-year-old version of yourself? Oh, look, I think... um 
you know, starting out career-wise, um, I, I would actually say try and get a lot of diverse experiences. And this goes a little bit to what can make someone a good chief risk officer is have lots and lots of different roles, deal with lots of industries, uh, you know, work overseas if you can. I never actually worked and, li- worked and lived overseas, but did do quite a bit of work overseas. So yeah. I think lots of diverse experiences. And I think it sort of goes to a bit about you know, some of the qualities of a good risk manager is you really need to have an inquiring mind, you know, be curious about why something happens, you know, read, and I used to say read the papers, they don't exist anymore, but, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and the next advice would be read the internet, but there's too much to read. But, um, <laughs> you, you know, get get a wide variety of news sources. And I, I like to, you know, follow Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Bloomberg, mm. CNN, you know, I read obviously Australian media as well, but just reading a diverse range of sources. I used to say, look at Twitter. I mean, Twitter's gone through a few challenges and <laughs> I'm just not too sure whether my advice on watch Twitter is now current. Have you purchased your blue tick yet? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't, I don't think anyone would be trying to impersonate me. <laughs> but yeah, I think, um, I think have, a, have an inquiring mind and yeah, lots of diverse experiences would be my advice. Mm. Awesome. Well, that's great advice to finish on. Um, thanks for your time, Peter. We really appreciate it. Um, and good luck with um, the rest of your career in risk, and we really appreciate your time. Yeah, and good luck with the podcast as well. I look forward to coming back when I've got something more interesting to talk about next time. Oh, sounds good. <laughs> thanks, thanks Peter. I really appreciate it. <laughs>